Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Strength and Conditioning at the LA Kings, Matt Price. into episode 275 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I know I say it every week, but this guy has been on my list for a long, long time, and I'm happy to bring Matt Price on the podcast today. So a couple of weeks ago, well, at the start of December, actually, when I was in LA, Matt was kind enough to hook me up with some LA Kings tickets. So first ice hockey game, a big one, um, really enjoyed it, so really pleased, because I couldn't speak to him before or after the game, really pleased to have a really good chat with him about the work he does at the Kings on this podcast today. So in this episode, a lot of it is based around load management, and if you listen in the States, it's obviously a, a buzzword that's been, uh, that's been around probably every sport now, and I get Matt's take on it and how he manages uh, his players in season, out of season, um, between games, um, in practice, etc., etc. So a really interesting chat around how he deals with um, with loan management at the uh, at the Kings. So really interesting uh, guest coming up. Really interesting conversation, which I am sure you will love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasure U have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt Price. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this afternoon, I am delighted to welcome Matt Price from the LA Kings. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thank you for coming on. And also, massive thanks to get, for getting me some tickets a few weeks ago. My Very pleasure. much appreciated to get to my first uh, NHL game, first ice hockey game, actually. Um, so that makes me a, an expert now. So we're all good. Um, 
<laughs> so anyone doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a bit of a background yourself, what you're doing at the Kings and what you've done previously, a bit of education, all the good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm born and raised in, in Toronto, Canada. Um, I was a hockey player myself growing up. Um, towards the end of my, my sort of amateur career around the age of 20, I ended up uh, you know, heading off to university and, and still playing collegiate hockey at that time. But, um, you know, I was always really into uh, strength and conditioning. And at the time, this would have been the early 90s, early mid 90s. There wasn't a lot of, you know, strength and conditioning coaches around in Canada at the time. We didn't have that sort of culture. So just someone who was really interested in in the sort of, you know, practice of trying to improve my performance through training. And, and I was introduced to kinesiology at the time and some really great professors and and that sort of led to the next thing and got into, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the strength and the conditioning world in my early 20s. Um, you know, and from there, as I finished up my playing career, uh, really got into, you know, the, the science of, of, of improving performance of hockey players. And I'll tell you, I was, I was very focused on one sport at this time. Uh, again, just through my connections through sport and, and, and different people, I was really, uh, fortunate to meet a great group of people out in Calgary on the, on the West side of Canada, uh, and, and, and met guys like Steve Norris, uh, Dr. David Smith, Matt Jordan, um, and ended up moving out to Calgary to do a master's degree there. Uh, again, just, um, sort of a, uh, real fortunate timing, but at the time Canada was selected to host the 2010 Olympics uh, and an opportunity came up as I was wrapping up my master's degree to get involved with uh, Alpine Canada, which is, you know, the downhill skiing uh, sport and um, was fortunate enough to, to be a part of the women's program for three years leading into 2010 Olympics. Again, I was not a skiing guy and, and never even actually skied before, um, but was sort of thrown into the deep end with a really uh, awesome group of people and a high performing group. Um, and we had a lot of success there in my short time with the, the women's program. And, and actually after 2010, then uh, moved over into the, the men's side of the sport and led them through four years into the Sochi Olympics. And so, again, as a hockey guy, I got to spend seven years in another another sport that had a lot of similarities, obviously a lot of differences and things I had to, to learn and adapt to um, and experienced uh, really, I think what high performance sport is and was uh, really, really great people, really bright people working at uh, the Winter Olympic Institute in Calgary, uh, among some of the brightest people in the world. Um, and after 2014, uh, I'd, I'd been engaged to my now, my now wife and, and life was kind of at a fork roads and, and an opportunity arose with the LA Kings. Um, and it was an opportunity to get back into the sport that I was so uh, sort of closely associated with my whole life and and um, very fortunate that uh, I, I got the job and me and my wife moved from Toronto at the time across the continent down to sunny Southern California and uh, we've been down here now six years so um, kind of a you know I've been a, been around been been a little bit of coast to coast and north south but we've now been here in LA for six years and uh you know, not only do we love the weather, but we're we're uh, we're very fortunate to be with a a, a very first class organization um, that uh, really uh, I, b- I believe um, you know holds the sports science and the strength conditioning department in in a high regard, and 
and has been very generous with supporting uh, the mission and the vision of trying to build uh, what I would like to be as the, you know, one of the top performance departments in, in all of sport. And that's, that's sort of what we're, uh, we're pounding the pavement for every day here is to just, just to be the best and, and support our athletes at the very highest level. Amazing. So on that journey of the last five, six years, what's changed? What was the department or what was the, what was the environment like when you came in versus what is now? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting thing because when I came in, I had a, a very close friend and really uh, a guy that I really think very highly of uh, Ryan Van Aston, who we did our masters together. He, he had been in here previous to me and done an amazing job in a very short amount of time, um, the Kings actually had won two championships in his three years. So he, he was, uh, really on a high level, uh, when he exited the position. Um, but when I came in, um, you know, different things happen when teams win and there was, there was sort of a, a, I would guess we'd call it, it was on a, on a decline, um, after the championships. When I came in, um, I was tasked with, uh, creating an infrastructure for being able to tell the, the general manager essentially are the athletes in shape. And he wanted very objective information. He was kind of tired of, of wishy-washy testing and, and evaluations and athletes being able to sort of talk themselves out of, out of uh, certain results. And, and so I was, I was tasked with creating a, uh, an infrastructure of, of being able to evaluate players in a very objective manner. Um, and the department, as we referred to it, and I used to refer to it as we a lot, but uh, it was me. Um, and, and that was just a one man show. Uh, there were, there was really no other people in the performance side of things. Um, so you're handling, you know, uh, all of the, the day-to-day training, the nutrition, uh, recovery work, the active recovery work, um, late stage return to play, uh, monitoring, uh, performance evaluations. So it's kind of, it's kind of a lot of work and, and I, I kept my head above water, but, uh, you know, a few years in, I was, I was fortunate that when I asked for help, they didn't hesitate to offer it and, and provide that. Um, we've grown the department now. We have a, an excellent assistant strength coach in Trent Fry. Uh, we've got a, a, uh, Data and technology manager Brett Bilby, who does some phenomenal work with data visualization and just handling quality control on our information. Uh, we've got an excellent nutritionist on our staff. Uh, we've got another great minor league strength coach, Paul Belucas, and we're we're growing. We're we're looking to add more staff, and and so now it's a really fun group, and we're we're really uh, you know bring different things to the table, and and you know from what it was before is in short order become a a, a nice. Uh, I would call a high functioning group. So we'll get onto the more specific objective measures that you use for testing and monitoring and stuff. But what was the first thing that you did when that was kind of put to you that there was want to be more objectivity when it comes to decision making from the the hierarchy on players? What was what was your yeah, first part yeah. call? <laughs> You're going to chuckle at this when it comes back to what we talked about offline about some of the sexy things that we think are happening in pro sport. The, the, the first thing I had to do was clean up our body weight weigh-in system. We had, uh, you know, and I was, a, I, was a, I was a new guy and sort of naive to how some of these things worked. We had issues with how our players weighed in. And <clears throat> I know this might sound a little bit confusing to some people, but when I was sort of spread super thin, I trusted people to step on a scale and log their weight for me. 
And we ended up with a lot of issues with that sort of approach. And, <laughs> and I learned my lesson very quickly that um, if there's an opportunity to, uh, to, to blur the lines a little bit, sometimes that's going to happen. And, and I, I totally get it. Um, so, so, so task number one was let's figure out how much our athletes weigh. Real simple question. Um, from there, then we moved into a more objective body composition uh, evaluation. Uh, I was familiar with DEXA scanning, so we we implemented DEXA scanning right away, uh, and eliminated the sort of you know source of of contention with skin folds or other methods that athletes are smart enough to be able to sort of explain their way out of. So we moved into uh, you know a, a touchless. Uh, weigh-in monitor, um, athletes weigh in automatically logged. We use, uh, we've used different products for this, but again, it's just a, a very uh, hands-off approach. Athletes are, are not entering anything. Uh, we use a DEXA scan, and that, those two pieces alone have almost single-handedly um, not only just solved issues. We don't really have any of the traditional weight or fat bo- uh, body fat issues that that kind of come up. I think because that system's relatively airtight, uh, but those were those were the first two things I had to do. So is that is that touchless weighing system a custom built thing, or is that a product? I know you may not want to say a name, but I know people like to know what people are using. If you can, yeah, absolutely. No, and we started off with Coach Me Plus. Um, they were they were an awesome product. That was something again when I when I started to accumulate information, I I I started with them right away. Um, they were, they were awesome to work with. Uh, and, um, we just kind of, we grew together and then there was a point in time where we, we outgrew each other and I moved on to another product. Um, but coach me Plus's weigh in station was awesome for us. It did exactly what I needed. Um, you know, we currently work with, uh, one paid product and then we're, we're really sort of autonomous now with, um, with my staff. They've, They've really been able to build a lot of custom in-house tools now, um, but really the, the the first steps were were with Coach Me Plus and the Bluetooth scales, and and just it works great. It it solved a lot of problems for us. So was that in terms of just keeping a track on the condition of players, or was that from like uh, like long term, or was that a daily thing to look at hydration levels and stuff? Yeah, it's a little little both, right? You know, daily we want to make sure that athletes are regaining the body water. I mean you got a sense for the sport when you saw it, but we're doing that every other day plus practices in between. So, you know, we got to make sure that's, that's our proxy for hydration is, are they regaining the weight? You know, they're losing, you know, two, three, four, five, six pounds, some guys daily, uh, just in body water. So that, that's a sort of an acute, um, proxy for hydration. And then long-term, uh, various athletes, you know, we've got athletes that are 35 years old and have four kids at home. Well, they're, they're more prone to weight gain because maybe they're eating the chicken fingers and fries with the kids at lunch <laughs> instead of the, you know, the, the salads and the, and the salmon. Um, and we got young guys that tend to lose weight. So it's a little bit different. We're spread across, you know, anywhere from 18, 19 years old, if they're really, really young pros up to, you know, more senior athletes and, and they're, they're experiencing very different challenges with, with respect to body composition and weight. So the scale, again, seems like a simple thing, but for us, it was a daily check-in and a long-term uh, monitoring system for where our athletes are at. And, and it's a, it's a power sport, you know, not unlike a lot of your listeners that are familiar with European football and, and whether it's basketball, this stop and start intermittent type uh, sport, we can't afford to have excess weight, you know, movement efficiency and, and these, um, 
you know, uh, with respect to conditioning and just being able to sustain high high uh, intensity output is not going to be, uh, you know, served well if athletes are carrying too much weight or fat. Mm-hmm. Nice. We'll move away from the weight stuff, but I just want to continue on the kind of objective measures theme and something that was we were probably in the thick of it when I was over there at the start of December. Um, and I think it had been rolling on for quite some time. And that was the, the, the term that the press had got hold of. And it was load management. And if I'm, t- tell me if I'm wrong, but that was based on the Clippers and players at the Clippers. Yeah. I mean, right now it's everyone basketball and the NBA is, that's a, a huge buzzword. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, people from all over the world are, are following the NBA, but I mean, it got to a point now where the league had to implement rules um, with respect to how they would, uh, you know, dress certain players. They're sitting, uh, you know, you, you buy a you buy a ticket to go see um, the Lakers and LeBron James, and and you show up, and LeBron James is having a night off because of load management, and. As you can imagine, as a fan, that wasn't sitting well. So load management in North America right now has become a little bit of a bastardized buzzword, um, unfortunately. Um, however, I think there's there's some obviously there's some good things there, and in hockey specifically, it's still something that's you know I think it's in its infancy um, for a number of reasons. Um, but it's it's certainly catching on. Obviously, the, the the sports science and performance folks in the league are are actively tracking load. Um, of course, we know if you can measure it, you can manage it. Now, the final say in management is generally the head coach, and so now the relationship between your performance staff and the head coach, or or how how that might look, is really what dictates how things are managed. But um, certainly right now that's that's something that's really on the upswing in in uh, in the NHL so is that is that part of the reason that you've got someone visualizing this data for the coaches is that why you've gone that way or was that for another reason just to try to get buy-in from other areas of the organization well I think it's all part of it I mean <clears throat> to come back to your your original question around the objective measures um, you know I think as we expanded out from body weight and dexa the the philosophy I had coming in was, and always kind of has been, and this is this is going to be a little bit dictated by your resources, but when possible, let's use a direct measure gold standard instrument. Um, let's let's get away from you know integrated data or predictive data or algorithms. Let's let's really try to get after the the core of what we're trying to measure, and if possible, let's let's acquire that tool. So. Um, while you didn't get to see our, our training center, um, a lot of the technology built in is, is exactly that. So again, not, not novel by any stretch, but force plates measure ground reaction force. That's a great tool for measuring that. Um, and that's what we use for our jump metrics. We don't use, uh, an accelerometer or, a, or a, a linear transducer or some other technology. We use force plates. And that's just another example. Again, not, nothing uh, earth-shattering, but that's that's just more along the the, the lines of that philosophy. Um, the data itself, we we accumulate a lot of information. Um, primarily, uh, or initially, it was off-ice data. So, 
we're collecting all this great information. We know anthropometric information. We know neuromuscular information. You know, we build a nice profile from a from a sort of speed strength power profile, and we have different planes of motion and, and these types of things. And you know, and we had some great uh, partners with with respect to athlete management systems. But the the staff member we have here now is just um, you know everything is pulled together, and I think uh, not just load management itself but tying all of this information together ultimately that's the the goal here is to create these links between what we see in certain domains and all and then how does that affect performance um so again as you know we we don't want this information we don't want people in silos but we don't want information in silos and that's just again where where we're sort of housing things is trying to tie it together and so if i want to see uh, how an athlete jumped and I want to see how he performed on the ice that day. And we can, we can pull up our catapult data and we see some uh, possible correlations or connections or, or some sort of relationships. And then maybe we can tie it back to some body weight or body composition. It's all there at a, at a click of a button. And, and that's just, you know, where things need to be. I, I don't think that is in itself the competitive advantage. That's not the game breaker. I think now that is just what you have to have. That's that's what you need to to have at this level to to just compete. That's not a by any stretch uh, the cutting edge. So is that are we are we in a position now where players expect that you get a trade from somewhere else, and the players are looking for their capital unit or their wireless scales because that's where we're at. That's what players athletes are expecting now. Hundred um, percent, you know, and come back to what you said when I first started. It's only been six years, but the dramatic change in player attitudes in six years, and I hope that what we've done here in LA has been a part of that positive evolution. But um, you know, when we first started asking a player to wear a catapult bra and put a sensor on their body, there was a lot of hesitation and a little bit of fear and these different reactions players have to it for, for different reasons. Um, why are you scanning my body? Why are you doing this? And I understand, I get why athletes are, are fearful. What we had to do is create an environment where they understood the information was theirs. So there's transparency. It's always available to them. They can always sit and talk and look at it. So nothing is, is hidden away from them. It's always out in front of their eyes. They understand the information. And they understand how it helps them. And, you know, now what we're seeing is exactly that. We acquire a new player. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with Catapult. Oh, I'm familiar with this. There's a very, uh, there's a there's a much more comfortable athlete now with technology, with information. And, in fact, uh, you know, a core piece of my coaching philosophy is, is to create autonomous students. We want, we want intelligent athletes in our group. These athletes can ask smart questions of the information. This is engagement, um, and and again, this is this is how it all ties together. Is it's in front of their face. We want them to understand this stuff. So when you first got catapult, maybe I don't know, a couple of years ago, that was maybe seen as, like you say, the competitive advantage. But now that's, as you say, become the norm. Where are we going in terms of a competitive advantage from your point of view? What are organizations putting in place to try to 
elevate themselves above the rest in terms of in terms of their kind of internal, but also how that looks from the outside when recruitment or you know hierarchy or whatever that may be. Yeah, no, it's a really good question, uh, and it's something I I've been thinking a lot about lately, only because I've gotten onto a stream of books that are, are kind of in that theme. And you're talking a, a little bit about the rat race of of trying to keep up with the Joneses and whether it's propaganda in, in, in the media, whether, you know, here it might be on ESPN or in Sports Illustrated and you're hearing about, you know, this this NFL team that does this and this NBA team that does that and someone in our organization sees it and, hey, we have to do this. And, and there's this perpetual sort of keeping up with the Joneses. And while you think you are acquiring the newest, latest, greatest technology or 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 sort of procedure, the reality is, is you're just kind of keeping neck and neck. And I think there's value in that as well. Obviously, you don't want to get left behind. Um, but the, the big the big question and the challenge is, is how do you separate? What do you do differently to create competitive advantage? And uh, the short answer is I'm not sure. Um, what what a lot of teams are doing are starting to invest more in facilities into maybe the the sort of clubhouse atmosphere you're seeing fancier lounges and um, I really wish you got to see uh, our training facility um, it's it's a it's a it's a major stopping point on the tour when they're bringing through potential uh, free agents um, it's a very unique training space they've invested a lot of money in the training space. Uh, and we've taken advantage of our environment here. So if you if you were to walk through our gym right away, you'd notice that 50% of the walls are glass and we have a lot of natural light and we have a retractable roof. Well, you tell me another hockey team or even pro sports team in the world that has a retractable roof in their gym. Um, this, this has a huge wow factor. Does it change, um, you know, anything at the, at the, at the athlete interface with how we how we prepare them, how we train them, how we understand them? No, but it's really cool, and maybe that's a competitive advantage. When it comes to technology, unless you're creating your own technology, which I don't think many teams are just from the sheer cost of it, most of us are buying the same products. I think the competitive advantage, though, Rob, comes from how you understand and how you apply. You know, you've talked talk to a lot of people over the years, and force plates are, are, you know, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere now. Um, Ten years ago, when Matt Jordan and myself in the group in Calgary really kind of got back into force plate testing, they were unheard of. It was almost impossible to find we we re re sort of invigorated the isokinetic dynamometry. There was some fun stuff we did there, and I'm not saying we were the the people that started it, but at the time, I know that there wasn't a lot of this going on. Force plates are everywhere. I've received I don't know how many calls from people saying, "Hey, I bought force plates. What should I do with them? What am I looking at?" <laughs> so it's a classic example of that. I need to get force plates because either everybody else has them or my boss said I had to have them, and I, but I don't know what to do with them. The competitive advantage to me is is your deep understanding of the information and how it relates to athlete health and performance and how do you use it. Does the athlete engage with the information? Is the athlete bought in? Does the coach understand to buy in? 
Does management understand and buy in? And can we can we really drive better athlete performance from information? And that's still the 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 golden nugget here. It's not the it's not the the tool and it's not the number it spits out. It's how it gets put into place. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about the off ice data collection, but and obviously catapult and similar products have made it possible to measure on ice um, external load. But is internal load still a something that you measure? um with your guys yeah and you know so it's interesting in ice hockey is i think external load measurement is so new to us um you know i i think i've been working with catapult for four seasons now and when we started there might have been only a couple of teams that were we're using something like that and now we're well over half of the league and in more collegiate teams and we actually have the, the program expanded to our minor league affiliate um, <clears throat> external load is still something we're, we're really trying to grasp and 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 understand at a deeper level and how it impacts performance and health what like you said internal load is 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 a it's still hyper relevant but the the marriage of the two and and again nothing Nothing novel here. There's plenty been published on these topics, but internal load in in hockey is uh, really incredible information in the context of external load. And so, um, I know some teams are able to capture both uh, every day. We we are, you know, ninety nine point nine percent compliant with our catapult data um, with respect to, to athlete buy in. Um, we track every ice session that they participate in with the exception of games. Of course, that's a huge chunk of information we're missing out on, but that's a league rule. Um, and then with with the internal load, what I'm able to do, and we don't do it every day, is we're, we're looking very closely at rehab athletes uh, and athletes that are in and out of the lineup. So in ice hockey, we tend to have, you know, two or three extra players for a game that won't play. So those ones will, will require extra work um, in between games. And so we'll, we'll monitor them a little more closely uh, to, to track their conditioning. And so the internal load just paints a really brilliant picture for, for where their fitness is at with respect to external load. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. I hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss weekly structures and given the amount of games that NHL players play, how practice and how training, strength training, actually fits in around uh, technical sessions, tactical sessions, and obviously the the, uh, the huge amount of games themselves. So really interesting part two coming up with Matt. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics are the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customized cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. So the technology is constantly evolving, much like an app on anyone's iPhone or Android. They communicate with the user on a daily basis to make their system better and better. So in addition to all that, they also offer the most competitive price for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system, which is obviously a huge bonus. 
So in April 2020, Hawking Dynamics are hosting an educational event in St. Louis, Missouri at the prestigious Maryville University. So this event is definitely not one to miss. So it's a full two-day experience headlined by speakers like Dr. Jason Lake, who's been on the podcast before from Chichester University, Eric Renahan, who is the head of sports performance for the St. Louis Blues, Daniel Hicker, who's head of sports performance for the San Jose Earthquakes, and Lauren Green from the University of California and their sports performance analyst. So these are the leaders of Forceplay Research and Technology. So to learn more about this event, head over to the Hawking Dynamics website, which is hawkingdynamics.com. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. In terms of the external loan, in terms of Catapult, I know they have, and I can't remember off the top of my head the actual terminology and the names of them, but they have some ice hockey-specific metrics. Is that something that you've moved towards, or is it more at the generic um, metrics that that you're looking at? And is there anything in particular on either front that you're kind of really diving deep into and it's giving you some really cool information? Yeah, you know, and and I think the Catapult – um, external load metrics, they're not, they, they might have hockey terminology, but at the end of the day, we're all talking about player load. Um, the one, the one thing about ice hockey is if you were to sit there and look at it, they're constantly moving. So even if they're standing there, you know, having a drink of water, they're still moving. And that's because they're on ice and there's, you know, it's almost impossible to sit still. And so they, they accumulate a lot of low intensity load doing nothing. Uh, Catapult's got a nice metric that just filters out low load work. And so we kind of focus in on, on the actual active uh, external work. And really that's, that's a main um, workload metric for us. And they, they call it on ice load, but really it's just a filtered player load. Um, and, and Catapult provides us with I don't know, 1,200 different metrics. Um, obviously, that's that's uh, far too many things to concern yourselves with. But we do look at some of the stride metrics. They've got a really great algorithm for stride detection, and so the skating stride is, um, you know, something we want to we want to watch closely. Um, skating is is a, a a nasty thing on the body. The the body's uh, not designed to move that way and the hips aren't meant to go in those directions that often. Um, so we watch that closely. They, they take roughly a thousand strides in a practice, you know, and that's, um, you know, that's a thousand strides in a plane of action that the body wasn't meant to move. So we're watching that closely and, and groin injuries are something that we're hyper, hypersensitive to. So we're, we're, we're handling groins a lot like maybe European football handles hamstring injuries. Um, so, so some of those stride metrics within catapult help us monitor the day-to-day function of our athletes. 
Um, now, with respect to internal load, uh, we we integrate our heart rates right into Catapult. It's a nice sort of simple tool that that ties it all together for us. Um, what I really like is we've started to look at, like I said, the the, the relationship between internal load and external load, and um, the 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 sort of trim to workload ratios are very revealing, particularly with an athlete that's coming back from injury. Uh, we can literally track their their conditioning improving day to day, um, and know at a at a particular time when that athlete's likely fit enough to return to the lineup. So that tool's been really nice for us. Again, it, it's not it's not you know 100 precise, but it really sort of narrows us in on a path that gets us back to 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 putting an athlete back into action that we feels physically ready to handle the demands of the game. Um, and so, like I said, there's, there's this unique, uh, relationship between those two and certain days will, will, will cause fluctuations in that. We see a real spike in internal loads the day after a day off our players get four days off a month. So that, that one day off is enough to sort of, you know, if we're lucky, put them into a bit of a parasympathetic state when they come back the day after the stress response really spikes that that ratio between the internal and external. And then we see things sort of restabilized. But, um, you know, that that's kind of the, the, the fun tool right now is, is, is tying those two together and watching them uh, play off each other. And when we when we put athletes back into action mm-hmm. while we're on the topic of, of groin and hip hip issues i came across a uh, a study from this year in the orthopedic journal of sports medicine this just this week looking at um elite elite ice hockey goalkeepers and it says just to quote it 69 of players experienced hip and groin problems and 36 percent of players suffered from uh, substantial problems so it's obviously a obviously a clear issue uh in goalkeepers as well as as well as outfield players so is there anything that you do specifically to try to mitigate that risk of, of problem of ongoing problems? Yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously a, a multifactorial problem. Um, I think there's some, some big rocks that you can take care of right away. And then you get into the nitty gritty of, of trying to mitigate soft tissue injuries. Um, the big one right away is, is going to be load management and, uh, how do we prepare them coming into the season? So, you know, a, a typical uh, hockey calendar year is, you know, let's say from uh, May through September, they're they're the in the off season, and then September through you know April is the competitive year. We want to make sure that they've built enough load through the last half of their off season, so that when they they get back into training camp, they're they're ready to handle what the coach is going to put at put at them, and that is actually the time of year where we see most of our groin problems and it's generally in athletes that either have a groin weakness or haven't done an, haven't done enough work to prepare themselves for that um, now load management again throughout the season we're looking at again these sort of spikes in acute load now it's a great model um, to be honest over the last four years the acute chronic ratio has not provided us with much insight um, on the day to day, and we haven't seen many groin injuries that relate back to that ratio, except in extreme cases. So we come back to uh, 
occasionally we'll have longer stretches of time where the players don't skate. For example, Christmas, we had three days with no ice time. Uh, coming back out of that break, we threw them into two games in consecutive days. We're hypersensitive there, so there's some things that we try to do to mitigate that. And again, there's an all-star bye week that that players are going to have 10 days without ice time. We know there's going to be an issue coming out of that break. So load management's uh, a big piece of that. Um, in the gym, we're looking at um, how do we handle frontal plane work. So um, we have a various you know number of exercises we'll we'll apply to the athletes, whether it's you know uh, the isometric work, the Copenhagen's, more dynamic work, eccentric loading in the frontal plane. Um, but we're, we're really kind of careful how much additional frontal plane work we give them. Like I said earlier, they're taking a thousand strides in a frontal plane as it is daily. When we use the things like groin bar, and we, we haven't used it in a couple, uh, we, we use it once a year, usually just in, in, in September before the season starts. Our athletes have incredibly strong adductors. Um, so there's not a, there's not necessarily a weakness issue. What happens is we, we end up with, um, you know, just these acute under, uh, I guess we would call them to just not ready to go. So if, again, if you take a day off and they haven't used that plane, we need to kind of reactivate it. So little things like that, the off season is a lot different. We're very aggressive on frontal plane work in the second half of their summers. We deload that plane in the in the first half of their off season, and then we really ramp it up late. Um, again, it's it's in the 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 line of thinking is to manage how much frontal plane work these athletes get on their hips. Um, roughly a hundred percent, and I'm I'm not trying to be uh, 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 exaggerating here, but we assume a hundred percent of our athletes have some form of FAI of the hip whether it's cam or pincer lesions, they're not all symptomatic, but we assume that there's something going on there. Um, and it, with that in mind, what we're trying to do in the, in the 12 month calendar is to just take opportunities to deload that plane. Uh, we see a lot of, a lot of people, uh, and, and I'm not here to argue their own approaches to this, but early, early off season, really getting after frontal plane work. And that's something that we've actually removed and allowed the hips to just sort of settle and, and deload that whole plane of action. And we think overall that that's a, that's another positive impact on groins. And the last one I'll finish up with quickly is a lot more posterior chain training. Um, I think my experience with ski racing and the whole ACL injury prevention uh, emphasis there really, really taught me a lot about hamstring strength and and um, the posterior chain, and, and we started to apply a lot more hamstring and posterior chain training to our hockey players, and I think it's had a positive impact on on pelvis uh, positioning, deloading the hip flexors, and taking a little bit of strain off the adductors. And uh, you know, just to knock on wood here, we, we've we've had uh, what I feel is a, a significant impact on those soft tissue injuries. So when you're starting to reintroduce frontal plane work in the second half of the off season, what does that look like for you? Yeah. Yeah. We'll start with, with low level isometrics. We'll work them in short ranges in flexed ranges. Um, and so we're kind of, we're going to just sort of build up some tolerance and, and some tissue quality across different positions before we get into more dynamic work. 
And then we'll get into some things where maybe the, the ankle's loaded on a pulley and we might have them actively adducting or, or pulling into some eccentric positions. Um, and then there's this sort of progression into uh, what we'll finish with is slide board work. And I know slide boards and ice hockey seem sort of synonymous, but we don't use it a ton. However, if you've ever been on a slide board, the, the, the load on the groin is really significant. And so we'll, we'll sort of progress them to slide boarding, which um, is a really nice sort of isometric, eccentric loading action. And we'll get a lot of volume on the slide board by the time we're into early July and the players are getting ready to go back on the ice. Um, they've done a ton of this sort of progression from short range isometrics, longer range isometrics, so your Copenhagen type stuff, and then into more dynamic type work. Um, even even into, into frontal plane plyometrics where we're getting a lot more uh, in speed and agility type drills where we're getting into shuffling and change of direction in the frontal plane, there's a significant groin load there. So we'll just sort of build that into that that middle phase where then we're passing them off onto more on-ice work and they're back in the field doing what they do best. So when we're moving into the in-season, obviously with so many games back-to-back, night after night at uh, points, what does what does the gym work look like and where does that actually fit? Does that fit the day of the game? Yeah, you know what, Rob? Um, it It's every day. And, you know, the, the traditional uh, approach to NHL strength conditioning, and this is, you know, the, the guys who really started this, and, and NHL strength coaches have really only been in the league for the last 20, 30 years. It's not like they've been around forever. But um, one of the... The traditional approaches was if you're going to lift weights, it's got to be after a game because now you have the, the, the largest period of time to recover from your strength session. And, you know, that kind of made sense. And I didn't ask a lot of questions when I, when I kind of got here and I thought, well, you know, that's, that's what you do here. Um, but I think when you look at what you're trying to do in the weight room, we, we just break it into two simple buckets. There's the, the neuromuscular performance, you know, whether it's the speed, strength, and power, and then there's the tissue maintenance, and we're looking at maintaining lean mass, two very different workouts. And obviously a hypertrophy-based program or workout is going to cause some, some muscle soreness and require some time to recover from versus something that's high intensity in nature with a little bit of, you know, CNS fatigue, we can recover from quite quickly. And I think that changed the, the way we look at how we train our, our athletes. So um, what we do actually is is the microdosing, and I borrowed the term from Derek Hansen, but we, we microdose very high-intensity work almost daily. Um, that's game day, that's practice day, coming out of days off. We're constantly giving them something with high-intensity uh, uh, stimulus. And we really expose the, the spectrums of the, the force velocity curve. We're, we're looking at very high speed movements and we'll look at very high force movements. Uh, we're fortunate that we work closely with 1080 motion. Um, I'm a big fan of, of their equipment. We, we originally brought it in for some of their eccentric cap- uh, capabilities, but we use a ton of slow velocity isokinetic work in in very specific ranges and athletes are putting out massive force values 
um, in an action that's concentric only, causes no soreness, and we get huge, huge stimulus on the nervous system. So something that we can use often. Um, the uh, On the flip side, uh, I really like uh, the work John Kiley is doing in sort of challenging traditional periodization and his his sort of um, theories around the the psycho-emotional state, biochemical state of athletes and their ability to adapt in a, in, a, in a given period of time has really made me think long and hard about training a hockey player after a hockey game. And, and you were fortunate enough to come down and see one of our games. Imagine what you just watched and then taking that group of players in the weight room and throwing a, a hypertrophy-based workout at them may or may not be a good idea and i'm not saying it's it's one or the other all the time but those guys just went out and if they played a lot their bodies are beat up they're depleted from a from a substrate standpoint they're dehydrated they're emotionally exhausted the game is highly emotional so even a player that only played 10 minutes which is a low a low amount of work in hockey has spent the entire day emotionally getting engaged for that game they may or may not have the capacity to adapt to that workout. So we've we've really gotten away from the post game, uh, the traditional post game workout. Um, occasionally, we use it when it's when it's something that we really have to do. But um, for the most part, we've really de-emphasized that session and allowed players to just you know get home, get recovered, and focus on on the next game. And like I said, because we have access to some of these tools in our in our main training center 1080 motion being one of them um, we can microdose some of these other other sessions uh, better the day between games so if you had a monday night game and a wednesday night game for instance you would lift on a tuesday and you would leave monday and wednesday alone yeah but again the monday the, the monday and wednesday morning um, they're going to have elements in their quote unquote warm up that have uh, maybe a high power, high velocity component to it. Um, okay. So, yeah. so we'll build that into their their daily routines, but it's microdose at a level that really doesn't have any sort of lingering effects. Uh, in fact, generally uh, helps promote some sort of stimulation uh, and, and wake them up, so to speak. So, is that are them on? Sorry, on game day sessions, are they all on ice? Or is there any conditioning work, speed power work that is off ice? Yeah, and, and I understand not, not everyone is familiar with our day-to-day routines. But uh, just to quickly give you an idea, on a game day, the, the morning, we call it a morning skate, but all the players are going to go on the ice around 10 a.m. Uh, and the coach will take all the players out. It's, it's kind of like your NBA shoot-around. Um, they'll go out on the ice and they'll, they'll run through a series of drills and it might be 10 or 15 minutes at the most. Uh, and some players will s- spend a little more time out there working on some skills. But that's the morning on ice element. Um, prior to that, they'll come in the gym and we'll give them their, their off ice preparation and we'll run them through a series of mobility drills and then run through some stability work and then get into more of the, the CNS activation type uh exercises and it could be some some version of a loaded jump uh we really like using the watt bike and we'll we'll put them on the watt bike with zero load and ask them to spin at maximal velocity for five seconds you know and guys are going to put up you know 200 210 rpms in five seconds uh really safe way to get some high velocity uh contractions out of them 
just little things like this that we like to apply on a daily basis. So they'll go through that off-ice work. They'll get on the ice, run through some of the, the, the drills the coach has just to kind of get their hands and feet going. Um, now, players that aren't playing that night, so like I mentioned, we have a couple guys that won't play each night. They'll do additional conditioning on the ice. And this this is part of that load management conversation is managing up their chronic load by daily, daily work. Um, we end up with some guys that slip through the cracks on the low end because they're not playing enough. This is where a tool like Catapult really drives daily conditioning. Um, traditionally, in hockey, stationary bikes are, are the be-all and end-all. Everyone was on a stationary bike riding, you know, miles and miles and miles and miles. We've gotten away from conditioning on a stationary bike or on a, another piece of cardio equipment. My argument is that if they need to be fit to skate, then we should skate. And, and it all kind of ties together with load management. But our players that don't play enough are going to get their conditioning while skating, not on a stationary bike. And, and we'll use catapult in some of our, our models to, um, to give a daily target. And then we'll work with our coaches to, uh, to communicate that. And they'll, they'll run them through a, an additional, you know, session to, uh, to get the load and, and some of the stimulus that we like, maybe some high velocity skating and these different things that we feel are going to help them stay ready. So just to finish off the story, bring it to an end we'll talk about recovery for a little bit is there anything that you're doing specifically from a recovery point of view given that how much given how much load is going through these guys night after night with the 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 hectic game schedule as we've as we've discussed yeah and you know it's 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 a real challenge um you know there's there's the textbook answers uh in how you would want to do these things. And then there's some, sometimes it's just the reality of our, our sport and the, the, the logistics of, of travel and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> of course, as soon as the game's over and we're, we're averaging one game every other day. So we have roughly 44 hours to recover. Um, nutrition's the first and foremost, we're going to have, uh, you know, their recovery drinks and their meals prepared post game hydration is a, a critical element in that. Um, and then sleep, like it comes back to what I said before is de-emphasizing the post game workout. Let's get them home. Let's get them rested. Let's not jack them up with more stimulus from a workout. Let's get them home and get them to bed. Our games are, are usually at 7 PM. So athletes aren't getting home until 11, 11, 1130 PM. Um, if we're at home, if we're traveling, it could be later, we might be on a plane. Sleep issues after a game are a real concern, so we want to make sure that we're getting them to bed as soon as possible. Uh, those are the easy ones. Um, of course, there's more passive modalities. If we're lucky, uh, they always have access to cold tubs, uh, massage, some more soft tissue uh, modalities. Um, I think another interesting component of, of recovery is is looking at the, the, the in, in between day. And I don't have an answer for this, but I'm very curious of where athletes go with respect to their, their sympathetic drive. Um, if we're to remove uh, any stimulus in the day between games, for example, if they're to, to play a game and the next day have nothing, what happens in terms of, you know, removal of sympathetic drive, or are they going into a deep parasympathetic state? And we, we kind of understand a little bit how they, they slip into that recovery mode. It tends to happen a little bit later on the day off, but how do we, how do we tease that, that balance and make sure that when they come out of that, 
that state or that day off, are we able to get them ramped back up appropriately? And I know you asked about individualization, and I think this is that next area is trying to understand exactly where each one of these athletes has has gone in their time course with respect to getting into a recovery state, and then how can we optimally bring them out of that to, to get ready to play again? And, you know, the, the whole recovery process that, you know, we sort of take care of the big things, but I think there's this, there's this other uh, curiosity I have around how we're handling that element and what can we do to, to get them ready to go again. So do you find there is a, a trend among certain players who don't deal with that day off as well on the, on the return day as others? Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely individual differences and, and let's take, um, let's take their, their, uh, lifestyle choices out of the day off. Um, but assuming all things (laughs) being equal, um, what we tend to see are the, uh, you tend to see the big guys, struggle on the first day back and when i say big our our big guys are probably in the uh six foot four 230 240 pound range they're not massive human beings but they're big dudes um and then our little guys are in the five foot 770 pound range so that's you know there's a bit of a spectrum there but the big guys tend to be a little more sluggish on the day back um and our little guys tend to be a little bit more awake. They tend to be, you know, and I don't know if that's related to more of a, uh, you know, a body type. If you have the sort of wired explosive type body tends to stay on edge a little bit better versus the, the big, slow aerobic type athlete that, that can slip easily into a parasympathetic state. But we see these two types of athletes tend to handle the day off a little bit differently. And again, it, it just, it forces us to to get after them a little bit quicker on the first day back to make sure that they're up and running, so to speak, um, because they're going to get put into a practice that the coach is going all out. There's not a whole lot of uh, easing them into things because of, a, of the pace of our sport is we have to get going. And so if they're not ready to go for that first practice, again, we're at risk for something that, that might be soft tissue related, and, and that's uh, that's unacceptable. Do you have conversations with players who are aware of that? Like, for instance, the bigger guys who do, after every day off, go, I'm struggling on that first day off. That that first, that, sorry, that first day back, it always kills me every time. Are players becoming aware of that? Oh, it, it's amazing, Rob. Um, it, these guys are running at such a high level. You imagine just a single day off when they all come back, they tell me how crappy they feel. And it's just, it's... Uh, it's it's so obvious what's happening, um, and and there's there's constant conversations as you can imagine, um, and, and that's something that we we really want to emphasize with our players is just this this open communication about how you're feeling, and then how can we help you know augment that either you know make things better in, in any way possible. But um, yeah, no, we 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 hear that all the time, and it's like I said, that's that's part of that pattern we see, but we're we're always looking for. The, the guy that's struggling out of that day off and, and then how can we, we help him or, or at least dig into it and find out why it might, might be that way. You know, we've had, uh, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, a day off where they laid on the couch all day and they're coming back and they're just a, you know, 
there's a pile of mush and they, they can't quite get going versus a guy who was up all night and, and then spent the whole day entertaining family at the beach and, and some things and they're just run down, you know, obviously very different situations. And that's just something where um, a simple conversation can help direct us to uh, maybe a better intervention and help them get through that day in a, in a better place. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, I've taken you past the hour, which I promise I wouldn't do, but um, forgive me. If anyone wants to ask any questions based on what we've chatted about um, and where, where would be the best place to do that, Matt? Yeah, I, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm not as active as I used to be, and I'm, this is how active I am. I'm actually pulling it up right now to remember what my Twitter name is. Um, <laughs> I am at mpricestrength. Uh, so I'm on Twitter and I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of checking and just hanging around, but I don't put a lot out there. Just, you know, the nature of our, uh, of our work here is sort of proprietary to a degree, but, um, certainly, I'm certainly available and, um, really, I just enjoy seeing what other people are putting out there and, and learning from, from a lot of the, the bright people that are out, uh, sharing great information. I know there's, there's some crap sometimes, but, um, you know, folks like yourself that put out awesome this, this podcast is so cool and and just uh, just to say it's it's been a lot of fun to be a part of it and an honor to be even uh, considered to be one of your guests but um, social media wise Twitter and like I said just uh, always available is there any thank you for that by the way um, is there any areas outside of our industry that you're looking at and going back to the um, the competitive advantage topic that we spoke about is there any outside the industry that you're looking for? information or for resources or inspiration yeah to be honest rob i don't even i if it's not on twitter i'm not i'm probably not even following <laughs> strength and conditioning because i yeah. i it doesn't i don't know what it is but i'm i'm so focused on what other uh other fields and other areas have to offer us uh and i, I know it goes through waves but a lot, a lot of my reading right now is in in the area of you know whether it's uh, team building and communication, um, different aspects of coaching. I think that's still something that that we can always be better at is with respect to how we handle uh, our fellow staff members and our athletes. Um, on a really cool book right now called The Innovator's Dilemma, uh, and uh, I read another excellent book called Different. Uh, by Young Me Moon, and these books, um, and this sort of area of interest right now is exactly that: the, how to differentiate and find new areas to innovate and be different to find competitive advantage, but not for the sake of being different. And it's a, that's the challenge. I don't have an answer for you, but um, I tend to move slowly. Um, I'm going to be thorough with this process, but uh, what I do know is that, uh, and this is likely in a lot of sports, but I know hockey well. And I think we're just at the cusp of really understanding how to how to integrate great performance data with on ice performance data, and and our athletes are getting better and better at an exponential rate. Our sports changing at a phenomenal rate. It's never been better, and uh, somewhere out there, there's going to be some really cool things done. Amazing! I'm definitely going to let you go now. <laughs> day. but really appreciate it, Matt again really appreciate you coming on and, and giving up your time in a busy schedule so thank you very much absolutely Rob pleasure to be here thanks mate keep in touch absolutely take care 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Matt. So big thanks to Matt for coming on, giving up his time in a horrendously busy schedule in the NHL with game after game after game, week after week after week. Um, so really appreciate his time and, and sharing his knowledge and wisdom. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. And don't forget that, uh, that event in St. Louis, Missouri, in April. Uh, if you're interested in that through Hawking Dynamics, head over to their website, uh, hawkingdynamics.com, for further information on what looks to be a really, really cool event. So thanks again for tuning in to episode 275, and I will speak to you next week.